Hello and welcome to another Freshfields Tax Matters podcast. I'm Josh Critchlow with the London Tax Team. Jeremy Hunt delivered his second fiscal event as Chancellor, with a spring budget striking an optimistic tone for growth in the UK economy. With limited fiscal resources, he chose to deliver helpful policies on childcare for working parents, as well as subsidies for household energy bills, easing the burden of inflation. All of this delivered with lashings of Brexit jingoism, mindful of an election looming next year. For tax policy, more than ever, this means that business will be focused not only on what the Chancellor had to say, but also on what the Labour opposition party might do if they get into power. With me to analyse the tax policies in this spring budget, I'm delighted to be joined by Freshfield's UK tax partners, Helen Buchanan and Paul Davison. Hello, Helen and Paul. Hi, Josh. Hi. As I mentioned, the Chancellor's spring budget had an optimistic tone, seemingly as a result of better than expected report card from the OBR. The OBR's latest report states that the UK's economic and fiscal outlook has brightened since its last report published in November 2022. The UK's near-term downturn is set to be shallower than predicted, with inflation expected to fall from almost 11% at the end of last year to 2.9% at the end of this year. And the UK is now not expected to enter a technical recession in 2023. These improvements in the economic forecast flow through into a better outlook for the public finances. And as a result, the Chancellor now has about £25 billion a year extra to play with and has used a significant chunk of this, almost two thirds, on spring budget measures to address remaining structural weaknesses in the UK economy, including tax policies to boost business investment. That's right, Josh. The headline item in the corporate tax arena is the three-year 100% capital allowances measure. Of all the tax measures in the budget, that has by far the biggest revenue impact for the Exchequer. It's expected to cost a little under £10 billion per year for the next three years. After that, it should have the net effect of raising revenue in that what this does is fundamentally to accelerate tax relief. So in a sense, it's just timing. But given the way that allowances normally work on a reducing balance basis and at 18% a year, that timing benefit is going to take a long time to unwind. And of course, what the government hopes is that this will stimulate investment that wouldn't otherwise have been made. Okay, so that sounds pretty significant. And the numbers were certainly large. But can we put this in context? Because of course, we currently have a 130% super deduction regime that was introduced by Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor in 2021. And that's running out on 31st March this year. Yes, that's right. And in fact, the two regimes are actually quite similar in their scope and effect. To understand that, you have to remind yourself that the corporation tax rate is currently 19%, but it goes to 25% on the 1st of April. And that increase was also announced back in 2021. Obviously, there's been a lot of debate in the Tory party about whether the planned corporation tax rate hike should go ahead. And it was briefly reversed in the trust quarting mini budget last autumn. But now it's definitely happening. Some commentators are linking the two measures. Yes, Helen, that might well be right. Though I would note the numbers don't quite match up in that if you look back at the 2021 budget materials, the government was expecting to collect a lot more, 12, 16, 18 billion a year from the rate increase than it's now expecting to give away with the full expensing regime. Anyhow, the point I wanted to make was on the continuity between the super deduction and the new full expensing regime. So back in 2021, as we just said, the government announced that the rate would go to 25% from 1st of April this year. A rational taxpayer response to that announcement would have been to look to accelerate income so as to be taxed at 19% rather than 25%, but also critically to defer any reliefs. 
so as to get their benefit in a 25% rate environment. But at the same time, the government wanted to encourage investment with upfront tax relief for expenditure on qualifying plant and machinery. So how to square the circle? Well, giving a 130% deduction in a 19% rate environment is roughly equivalent to giving a more normal full expensing 100% deduction in a 25% environment. So in a way, you can see this announcement as just extending by another three years the two-year measure that was announced back in 2021. That's interesting. And Paul, this is really a policy focused on the largest businesses, isn't it? Yes. Again, that's a good point to make to put it in context. Most smaller businesses will already be able to fully expense their expenditure on plant and machinery using the annual investment allowance. For some time, that's been set at £1 million, and that's a position which has now been made permanent. Okay, so that's useful background. So what sort of investment is within scope for this new full expensing regime? Well, broadly speaking, it's anything falling within the plant and machinery category for capital allowances purposes. The kit has to be new and cars can't qualify, but otherwise there are no limits on the type of expenditure that can benefit. I should explain that the 100% allowance applies to plant and machinery that would otherwise be in the main pool, i.e. qualifying for the normal 18% rate of allowances. For what's called special rate expenditure, and that includes expenditure on long-life assets and on integral fixtures, the normal rate is 6%. And for those assets, the proposal gives a 50% first-year allowance rather than the full 100%. So you get half the expenditure written off immediately, and then the other half is relieved on the usual 6% reducing balance basis. So that's what's covered. What isn't? Well, that's the thing, because as a category of business asset, plant and machinery is rather less important in the modern knowledge-based service-oriented economy than it once was. Fundamentally, plant and machinery means tangible assets, although not buildings or other structures. For those, the position is much less generous. For a while, in fact, we had no tax amortization at all on that sort of expenditure or investment. In 2018, though, the structures and buildings allowances were introduced. And then in 2020, the rate on them was increased, but it's still only 3% on a straight line basis. So we've now got some pretty significant distinctions in terms of the treatment of investment in tangible assets. If you build a new factory, the structure itself might be written off for tax purposes at 3%. The electrical system that you put in it gets a 50% first year allowance and then 6% writing down. But the machines you hook up to that electrical system can get expensed in full. Interesting. And what about intangibles? Well, they're not covered. You've got to look elsewhere. For acquired intangible assets, fundamentally, we have an accounts-based regime for tax amortization. Interestingly, though, for computer software specifically, that has an explicit rule which treats it as plant or machinery for capital allowances purposes. And you're allowed to choose between the accounts-based rules for intangible fixed assets and capital allowances. Clearly, with this regime, you'd want to go for capital allowances whilst it's in place. And Paul, I would be remiss if I didn't pick up on the pillar two angle here, because of course, full expensing of tangible investment is an extreme example of a tax incentive, even tax competition that is still accepted under the OECD's pillar two framework. Yes, that's right. As will be familiar to listeners in large corporate groups, the pillar two rules look favorably on accelerated tangible depreciation. In calculating your effective tax rate or ETR for pillar two purposes to see if you're paying the required 15% in any given jurisdiction, you're allowed to count 
accounting deferred tax expense, which is attributable to accelerated tax depreciation on tangible assets. So it's interesting that for some tangible assets, at least, the Chancellor has in effect here pushed to the limit this one lever of tax incentives where the Pillar 2 rules still permit tax competition. I said at the outset that this is a three-year rule, and that's the way in which it's being introduced. But it's worth noting that in his speech, the Chancellor said that the government's intention is to make it permanent as soon as they responsibly can do that. Maybe that's another reason that explains why we're left with such different rules for tangible versus intangible investment in the UK. That is to say the Pillar 2 overlay that you now have to apply to that. Yes. And of course, when people talk about investment in intangibles, and certainly when they talk about innovation and new industries, what they really mean in tax terms is revenue expenditure on research and development. And that gives us a segue over to the latest developments in R&D reliefs. Where do things stand on that front? Again, the background is that we've got previously announced measures kicking in from this April. The government began consulting on possible changes to the two regimes here back in 2021. And in autumn last year, it announced changes to the rates. Broadly, the R&D expenditure credit or RDEC regime for large companies will go from 13% to 20% in April. And meanwhile, the super deduction rate in the SME regime will reduce from 230 to 186% with the rate at which losses can be surrendered for cash under that regime also going down. So on the rates front, that involves making the RDEC regime more generous, in fact, quite significantly more generous, a point that the Chancellor didn't make in his speech, interestingly. But on the other hand, the SME regime is becoming a lot less generous. Now, one change in the budget yesterday effectively relents a little on the SME regime cutbacks in that for SMEs where R&D expenditure is 40% of total expenditure, the rate at which the losses can be surrendered will stay at the existing 14.5% rate rather than dropping to 10. Yes, so clearly targeting those benefits more closely on those really innovative early stage companies. Exactly. You talked about the two regimes here, but weren't the government consulting on consolidating them into a single regime? In fact, the consultation just concluded. The idea that was put out for consultation would essentially fold the two regimes into a single RDEC-like scheme, so getting rid of the SME one and replacing it with a regime that looks much more like RDEC. The government obviously won't have digested the consultation responses yet, but the budget materials indicated that the plan is to publish draft legislation for consultation as part of the finance bill materials in the summer, potentially with a view to implementing a new combined regime from next April. And going back to Pillar 2, RDEC should be Pillar 2 compliant, shouldn't it? because it counts as a qualified refundable tax credit appearing above the line and it can be converted into cash. Yes, that's right. That doesn't explain why you would necessarily fold the SME regime into an RDEC one, because of course the SME regime is targeted at businesses that would be below the pillar two threshold anyway. In terms of the drivers here for a combined regime, I think a key one has been a concern about the level of error and fraud within the SME regime, which the revenue estimated at getting on for half a billion pounds a year. I see. And what about the scope of the regimes? Well, for the future regime, that's still under consultation, but there are a couple of points to mention for this April. The first is that, as had been previously announced, cloud computing costs will now come within the scope of the reliefs. The second change involves a delay to a previously announced one. So, 
the change in question will significantly restrict the circumstances in which R&D activities physically conducted outside the UK can qualify or expenditure on them can qualify. And whilst that change was due to come in from April 2023, now it'll be April 2024. And is that it on stimulating investment? Well, no, but those are the main things for large businesses. I might just mention in passing the latest on investment zones. As expected, the government has scaled the policy back pretty significantly. The idea now is to designate a total of 12 investment zones across the UK. Each of them will benefit from a similar level of government support as the free ports. So the numbers aren't huge. It's £80 million available to each zone, but that's across tax and spend decisions and over a five-year period. Interesting. Yeah. Investment zones always get headlines, but they're not the biggest giveaway. Helen, what measures caught your eye in the corporate tax sphere? Well, the measure that actually caused most immediate interest for my clients and my biggest flurry of budget day emails was the announcement hidden away at page 89 of the Red Book that proposed changes to the sovereign immunity rules won't go ahead after all. In July last year, the government unexpectedly launched a consultation on proposed revisions and clarifications to the UK's sovereign immunity tax exemption rules. These proposals were intended to bring in some additional tax, in particular from UK property income and gains and trading profits, and to make clearer which types of entity qualified for sovereign or crown immunity. The thinking was that the UK rules were opaque and potentially more generous than equivalent rules in other countries. I doubt the government or HMRC expected such a strong negative reaction to the consultation, which impacted not just the large sovereign wealth and pension funds, but also other inbound investors who co-invest alongside them in UK infrastructure, real estate and other assets. Now, this isn't a category of investors that you want to spook because they have huge pools of capital and they're not tied to the UK, so they can just deploy it somewhere else. They should therefore be very pleased the government has listened to their concerns and decided that the risk-reward simply doesn't stack up. Hopefully, they'll take this as a sign that the UK remains open for business and will continue investing here. There are also some other examples where the UK seems to have been listening, both to business and to HMRC, about changes needed to make the business tax rules work better. A suite of changes have been announced, which can be put into this bucket, some of which, but not all of which, work in the taxpayers' favour. These include proposed amendments to various sets of rules whose common features are that they're best known by acronyms, they're hideously complicated, and they don't always work as intended. And we've discussed a few of these, but first off, there are numerous changes to the Corporate Interest Restriction, or CIR rules. Now, these are all pretty techy, and most of them favour HMRC, but one that favours taxpayers is a change to the way these rules work in relation to long-dated equity notes up to 100 years, which I always thought was unnecessarily harsh. Yes, although what they've done is something of a half measure because it doesn't really fix the problem for fully perpetual notes, which still won't count towards a company's group ratio. That's right, but, it, but, but it's a step in the right direction. There are also some changes to the qualifying asset holding company rules. Now, most people call these quacks, but I've always called them quarks, which my Scottish cousins would say betrays my soft southern roots. Again, these, these changes are really techy and are mainly designed to make sure the rules work as HMRC always intended that they should, rather than being taxpayer friendly. One exception is a provision allowing quarks to elect to treat listed securities as unlisted so that they can meet the investment strategy condition. The quid pro quo is that the quark will be taxed on the dividend income. And there are a handful of tweaks that are proposed to the Real Estate Investment Trust, or REIT rules, 
which are mostly taxpayer friendly. One example we discussed is removing the requirement for a REIT to hold a minimum of three properties if it holds a single commercial property worth 20 million or more. And also on REITs, there is another amendment to the rules on deducting tax from property income dividends, so that a property income dividend paid to a partnership can now be paid partly gross and partly with tax withheld, depending on the status of partners. Yeah. And there's a separate change proposed on the genuine diversity of ownership or GDO rules. Now, these apply for the purposes of the Quark, the REIT, and the non-resident capital gains or NRCG rules. I did tell you there was going to be a lot of acronyms. But this is another taxpayer-friendly measure that allows a fund structure with multiple funds or investment vehicles to be looked at as a whole, rather than requiring each investor entity to meet the GDO condition. So overall, a few welcome improvements for those of us advising on fund structures, and sovereign investors can, for now, breathe a sigh of relief. But if we move on to another large UK industry, Josh, how did the energy companies fare in this budget? Well, Helen, at least in this budget, the Chancellor didn't make the investment climate any worse for energy companies. There was even some good news with funding and incentives to support the energy transition. Firstly, for oil companies in the North Sea, it was confirmed that the government will go ahead with an enhanced investment allowance for decarbonisation expenditure. On carbon capture, usage and storage, there is going to be a clarification on the treatment of payments into decommissioning funds. And most significantly, up to £20 billion of funding to support CCUS projects will be made available with a short list of the first projects to be announced later this month. On the clean energy side, the Chancellor announced a new vehicle called Great British Nuclear to co-fund nuclear power projects, including potentially small modular nuclear reactors. Nuclear will also be reclassified as environmentally sustainable, allowing greater access to investment incentives. These policies all sound good, but do they really amount to much in the context of an investment climate seriously damaged following the windfall taxes of last year? And whatever investors might think about this government, they also need to consider what might happen under a future Labour government. In Keir Starmer's response to the Chancellor's speech, he alleged that the government had left money on the table when it came to oil and gas companies, and that loopholes urgently needed closing. So this probably isn't the end of the story for energy companies, and we'll need to keep a close eye on tax policy in this area. Moving on, Helen, can you tell us about the changes to pensions? Yes, and perhaps that was the biggest headline grabber of all. Um, involving changes to the pension rules for high earners. In particular, increasing the annual allowance, which is the amount that can be paid into a pension tax-free annually, from 40 to 60,000, and effectively abolishing the lifetime allowance, which is the total amount a person can build up in a pension before retirement without incurring tax charges. Now, these allowances have been very significantly reduced since 2010, and the rules are blisteringly complex. So it can be difficult to work out whether you're going to end up the wrong side of them, particularly if you're a member of an inflation-linked defined benefit scheme. They can also operate punitively in some cases. The Health and Social Care Committee recently concluded it was a national scandal that senior doctors are being forced to reduce their working contribution to the NHS or to leave it entirely because of NHS pension arrangements. Now, various rule changes have been proposed to try to alleviate that problem, but with high inflation and a need to get older workers particularly skilled professionals, back to work, the government's concluded that drastic action was needed and the effective abolition of the lifetime allowance charge from 6th of April was a more generous budget rabbit than was expected this year. I always thought that the lifetime allowance was a bad tax policy. In order to know how best to comply with it, the rule required you to project out your investment returns over decades to guess what your pension pot would be at your retirement age. That's not great from a rule of law perspective. 
Yes, and all the while, you had the risk of the rug potentially being pulled from under you by chancellors tweaking both the lifetime allowance and the annual allowance, which has happened several times. For a long time, though, it seemed as though the policy changes in this area under any government only ever went in the direction of reducing the flexibility to make contributions. So yesterday's announcement came as a bit of a surprise. Yes, this will be a sensible simplification to the tax code, albeit one focused on high earners a point which Labour's already picked up on. And we've heard this morning that Labour has pledged to reverse the abolition of the lifetime pension allowance if it wins power. Thanks, Helen. So for now, at least, a small silver lining for individuals in this spring budget. And we will have the potential for more tax policy coming up when the draft spring finance bid is published next week on the 23rd of March, as well as later in the spring when we have been promised a tax administration and maintenance day. But for now, to sum it up, this budget will be defined for larger businesses by the new full expensing policy on tangible investment on plant and machinery, which really does feel like an important shift in UK tax policy, and potentially a policy we could start to see more of internationally now that Pillar 2 is gaining widespread adoption. Some investors, particularly sovereign immunes and energy companies, may breathe a sigh of relief that at least the Chancellor didn't make the investment climate any worse. But everyone will need to keep an eye on potential changes if the Labour Party wins power. That's right. Thank you again to Helen and Paul for joining me for this spring budget discussion. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. If you would like to discuss any of the issues raised in the podcast today, please get in touch with your usual Freshfields contact or any of our podcast speakers.